Jesus, in this second week of Advent, as we remember back to your first coming, and we look forward to your final arrival when you will make all things new in this moment, we pray that you would come and be with us this morning. Can we bring the longings of our heart? Some of us bring in pain this morning and we call out to you and say, Jesus, how long must we wait? Some of us bring in just unfinished stories and we just wonder, God, where you are in the midst of it. And some of us this morning, we look at our world, Jesus, come be with us. And some of us this morning, we look at our world we just long, God, for you to come into the broken places of our community and our state and our nation and our world and be the ever-present God that transforms. The God who moves into the neighborhood, the God who takes on human flesh and walks beside us and we say, come, Lord Jesus. And each week as we enter into worship, we're inviting one family up to just light the Advent candles. I want to invite the Vertries to come up. And each of these candles, they mark a week, the progression of time as we lead up to Advent. And the Vertries are going to light uh, the first two candles and then they're going to lead us in a communal prayer. Father, on the second week of Advent, Advent we rejoice in your great your only Son. You demonstrated your love by sending your only Son into the world that we might live through him. In these last days of Advent, help us experience your love fully. Embrace your love completely and share your love abundantly. We receive your promise from Psalm 36. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You guys did an awesome job. Totally get a fist bump for that. Oh, fist bump. That was, you rocked it. Oh, there we go. All right. I want to welcome you guys this morning to Wellspring. Uh, there should be plenty of chairs out there if you want to put some more chairs out. There's also seating in the front. It's not a toxic spill zone. You're welcome to make it over here. Uh, I want to welcome you. My name's Tony. I have the privilege of being pastor in this place. If you are a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, uh, there are so Miss Trish is over there. Uh, feel free to gather with her. And uh, you guys get to have some fun, right? Advent is the season when we... Now, if you're not familiar with Advent, right? Advent is the season when we look back to Jesus moving into the neighborhood. We look back into Jesus taking on human flesh. We also look forward to when Jesus will come again, right? He'll come again and says that he will make all things new. It's also a season when we pray for Jesus to show up in our lives 
right now, right? I think most of us feel that often in the holidays. We're going to finish our series, Unforced Rhythms of Grace, over the next few weeks. And then for those of you who are really excited for us to start a new book, so we spent most of last year going through John. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians, and we're basically going to spend most of next year plugging our way through 1 Corinthians. I think it'll be really, really good, but for now, we're in a series, and we're looking at what does it look like to practice the way of Jesus? There's this saying in the first century that you should walk in the dust of your rabbi and be covered in the dust of his feet. And this is the idea, right, is that you're walking along, the rabbi has sandals, what he's doing is each step, a little dust flicks off his sandal and then gets on your legs, right? And what this image is supposed to communicate is that rabbinic discipleship isn't simply just about information, right? You can't just do this in a classroom and someone says to you, all right, rabbi, it is about, all right, I'm good, right? It's not just about information. It is about following in the steps of your rabbi. It is about following and doing what your rabbi does. Peter has this great line in 1 Peter 2.21. He says this, uh, that Jesus has left us an example that we could follow in his steps, And this word example uh, in Greek uh, is where you get the word grammar, right? So this idea is in ancient Greece, they used to have kids learn how to write by tracing a letter. And what Peter is saying, he's echoing on this basic practice in Greco-Roman education. He's saying, in the same way, we should follow the example of Jesus. Look at his example and try and model our lives off of his. Now, over the last few months, we've been going through a lot of different practices, right? So, we based it off of our acronym ABLE. A uh, stands for attend. And we've gone over Sabbath. We've gone over healing. We've gone over prayer. In a, in a, I think next week, we'll go over worship, right? B stands for bless. So, these are practices we're inviting all of us to be a blessing in the world, right? We've gone over generosity and faithful presence, L stands for learn. We've gone over scripture. We've gone over your role, which is sort of our frame on spiritual gifts. And E, we've gone over some of them. We've gone over hospitality, and Aaron in a few weeks is going to go over celebration. And this week, that our our stories. Now, I think that our stories are sort of implied in a lot of the scriptures, that we should actually look at our stories and experiences as a way as the raw material for our formation, that God might speak to us through our stories. But the truth is, there's not a lot of proof texts I can get to to say, look, here are 40 different examples of where the Scripture says you should look at our sto- your story. But I think it's implied. And my hope this morning is to get us to look at our stories and our experiences as like the raw material that God uses to shape and form us. That when we actually look at our experiences and stories, that God has a lot to say about to us and about us through our experience. Now, I'm going to do this through a couple different ways, but I want to first go through three different principles, I think, that we can get from the Scriptures as it relates to our stories. The first is this, that our stories act as mirrors. Now, I want to sort of illustrate this point by looking at the life of David. So, give me a minute to actually prove this point. It's going to take me a second. I want to build up this story. All right, so if you remember, David is a king in Israel. He's the king, and one day, the scripture says this, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman, woman Bathsheba, is married to this guy, someone to find out about her. 
Right? David learns that this woman, Bathsheba, is married to this guy named Uriah, and yet he still calls for her. Right? She ends up getting pregnant. Now, in the midst of this, David is like, how can I cover this up? Right? So, what does he do? He says, all right, call Uriah back from the front, and what we'll do is we'll have him go in with his wife, and they'll, you know, do their married thing, and then he'll never know that she had an affair. But Uriah, he's this super faithful guy. He comes back, he thinks it's odd probably that he's been called back from the war front. And he's, he's, David's like, hey, go in, you know, enjoy a meal, go to your house, be with your wife. And Uriah said, no, I'm not even going in. Like, my friends are on the front fighting for this kingdom, I will not even go inside. And he sleeps outside. And David's like, you know, my plan has been foiled. Right, so he takes it another step. He writes to uh, Joab, who's the leader of his forces, who's commanding uh, Uriah. And he says this, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw for him so he will be struck down and die. Of his death, she mourns his instructions and Uriah dies. Bathsheba learns of his death. She mourns his death. And then David calls her into the palace, right? And they have a child. David, though, clearly isn't losing sleep over this. It's not really bothering him. And when we learn in the end of chapter 11, this is what a text says. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God is not happy with his behavior. So what does he do? In the next chapter, what we hear is that he sends a prophet, right? God often takes people and he uses them to communicate what he wants, Right, so he sends this guy named Nathan, Nathan the prophet, and he shows up on David's doorstep and he tells him a story. This is what he says. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So Nathan tells this story. And what's fascinating is David's reaction is he should not happen. We need to punish. He sees the injustice of this and he's like, this should not happen. We need to punish this guy. What's really interesting in this moment is David has a sense of justice and a sense of right, but it is radically disconnected from his own experience and his own story. In abstract, he gets it, but he doesn't personalize what's going on until verse 7, and Nathan says, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. All right, that's the story. Now the question is, how does this relate to story being a mirror 
to our own lives. First, what we see is this. Nathan tells a story to act as a mirror to David. Right? His attempt in telling this parable is to get David to see his own life differently. Right? If you think about it, the Scriptures do this all the time. Right? Have you read a story in the Bible that gets you thinking introspectively? Really relate to that person. I wonder why. And it gets you thinking introspectively. Tim Mackey, who leads and oversees the Bible Project up in Portland, he, uh, he has this great line. He says that the characters in the Bible are not necessarily models, but they are always mirrors. Right? We don't always want to emulate the behavior of the characters in the Bible, a.k.a. David in this moment. The Scripture says, do not follow in David's example, but David's life becomes a mirror to our own. I mean, you probably relate to this. Maybe you come in this morning, you know, and it's not always about conviction of sin. Sometimes it's just like you read the story of Job and you see Job suffering and you come in this morning and like Job, you say, God, where are you in this season? Stories act as mirrors. Two, what's the, I think the most fascinating part of this is what does God say through the prophet? He actually tells David the story of his life. I made you king, David. Do you remember that? I protected you from Saul. I gave you a palace. I gave you a family. And yet, in the midst of this, you diverted, right, from the goodness that I have given you and sort of went and stole someone else's wife and murdered a man. With God's eyes. He helps David see his own story through God's eyes. Right? He's saying to him, hey, this is your life. Look at it now as I see it. He uses his story to get David to self-reflect, to get him to look at his own life through God's eyes. And what happens? Right? David repents. Before, he couldn't see the connection between his own life right, and God's desire for how he should live. Right? After God reflects back to him through this story and then tells him the story of his life, what happens? Psalm 51. He writes this poem, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Right? In this moment, God holds a mirror to David's own life. Right? So that he can see his story through God's eyes. And God does the same thing with us all the time, right? He invites us to look at our own experiences. He invites us to look at our own stories and reflect, right? So that we can see our lives as God sees us. Now, rarely is the sort of example as stark. In but I can think of, that's generally not the case. Sometimes. But I can think of, a few seasons in my life where I needed someone to help me see my story differently. Uh, more recently, I was in the last probably five years, I've been mentored by this guy named Terry Walling who's really helped me on, in many ways. I, often I'll have these conversations with him whether I'm thriving and flourishing or stressed and anxious and he'll help me understand why. And what we'll do is we'll go through the raw material of my life. We will go through the puzzle pieces of my experience, and he'll help me connect, oh, this is why you're experiencing this today, Tony. 
Right? He's helping me as a guy, just as Nathan did with David. He's helping me to see my own life in light of God's, God's perspective. But it's not just that, right? Also, this can have profound implications for vocation and calling. Right? Like Terry has been super helpful to me to look back on like these moments of clear God-shaping and God-destiny in my past that has equipped me to be a pastor in this place. And he's helped me connect those dots. Which brings me to my second perspective. Not only do our stories act as mirrors, they also shape our choices. Now, we don't necessarily see in the text why David decides to draw material there. But we don't know exactly what leads to that. We don't, we don't get all the raw material there. Maybe it's because he had power and he just thought he could do whatever he wanted. We don't know. But we can see in other parts of David's story this connection between his experience and his choices. Does anyone remember how David first enters the Scriptures? Right? Samuel is trying to figure out a new king to anoint. He's walking around, and God says, hey, go to Bethlehem, talk to Jesse. Jesse has all these uh, kids, right? all these boys, and he's like, oh, that one looks good. And God's like, no, that one looks good. Right? And he's finally like, is there anyone else? Right? And God says this. There remains, or the Jesse says yes, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. So he gets this sheep catcher named David, and he anoints him to be the future king of Israel. If you fast forward a little bit, there's this giant, his name's Goliath, and he's out challenging the armies of Israel. And all the guys out there are like, I'm not fighting him. Are you fighting him? I'm not fighting him, you know. Dude is enormous. No one wants to fight him. Do you remember who says yes to fighting him and why? This little shepherd boy, your servant used to keep sheep for his, why are you willing to fight him? This is what he says. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Right? For he has defied the armies of the living God. Right? David... The shepherd has this experience with bears and lions so that when he comes to this key moment in the history of Israel, he is able to step up and say, I'll do it. He has this destiny moment that makes him the kind of person that when that choice is before him, he's like, all right, I know what to do. And I was born for this moment. And I think we can relate, right, not to fighting giants necessarily, but this idea of like our experience and our story, it shapes where we go to college. It shapes the career tracks we pick. It, It shapes our dating relationships. It shapes our singleness. It shapes our married life and our parenting. Ephesians 2.10 is this great frame that I really enjoy. It says this, for we are his workmanship, Paul. Poems. Workmanship is this word poem. It's where we get the word poem in Greek. We are God's poems. Created in Jesus Christ for good works. Right? Which God prepared for before him that we should walk in them. 
right? That we are designed, we are shaped by God, not just in the womb, but through our stories, through our experience. We are shaped into the kind of people that do God's kind of things in the world, that God has a plan for us, and He invites us to walk into those things. But it's not always easy, is it? It's really easy to read the verse. How do we figure out what the good things we're supposed to do are? How do we figure out what God's plan is? One of the ways we do that is we look back on our stories. God, how have you shaped and equipped me? What are the experiences you have given me that I can do these works? How do we discern our calling? Oh, we mine the field of our stories and experiences to discern God's invitation in the present. But this isn't simply a vocational tool. It also gets into all kinds of other things. If you were here a few weeks ago, I talked about sort of my healing journey. The truth is, right, in my early childhood and in my teens, a lot of things happened that really messed me up. So I got into my early 20s with a lot of dysfunctional relationships. But the thing is, they were just normal to me. Other people could have told me, yeah, 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 that... Tony, that's not how you should do it, but I couldn't see it. And it wasn't actually until in my early 20s, I met this guy named David Alvarez. And David was able to say to me, hey, let's, let's look at your story. Let's look at your experiences. And able to help me take me through those experiences that had shaped me into the kind of person that couldn't love well. That couldn't connect well. And then, right, seeing that, he was able to bring the Spirit of Jesus into those places through prayer so that I experienced all kinds of healing. Right? So that my choices would be shifted because of my new experiences. When our stories act as mirrors, our stories also profoundly shape our choices when it comes to vocation, when it comes to relational dysfunction. But even more, right, our stories inform our rhythms. Right, this series, we're talking a lot about rhythms. We're talking about practices. We're talking about how do we shape into the image of Jesus. Early on, we defined this process of Jesus training in this way. It is an engaged process of letting go. Right? This isn't ramping up and trying harder. This is an engaged process of letting go and submitting at deeper levels to the work of God in our life. And learning from Jesus that dynamic right, over the long haul of our lives that dynamically adapts, right, based on God's gracious will and invitation, right? Depending on the season you're in, the practices might shift. Depending on the experiences you've had, right, it might change. Sometimes what you need in one season is not what you need in another. As a shepherd boy, my guess is, right, David did not need practices of solitude. He had a lot of solitude, <laughs> And he's out in the hills by himself. But I think when he gets to the palace, he might have needed a little more solitude. He certainly needed the practice of community. He needed people to tell him, dude, you cannot do this. This is wrong. Right? When he was thinking about murdering Uriah and taking another person's wife. He clearly needed a practice of justice in his life. And Deuteronomy actually says that he needed to have a practice of Scripture. There's actually this really interesting line in Deuteronomy 19 that says that the king, he shall read in it, right, the Scriptures, all the days of his life. 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Don't just read them, but actually apply them. That his heart may not be lifted him into brothers. Right? Clearly, David needed a practice in the scriptures that would shape him into the kind of person that he would not kill a member of his army who's risking his life already so that he could steal his wife. David clearly needed a practice. And I think we get this, right? Depending on the season we're in, we need different rhythms. We need different practices. For me, if I look back on my story, what's really clear is, like, study comes really easy to me. Like, I just enjoy it. Like, I, the, in this season, I find myself, like, I'm sort of in First Peter, I'm translating it in Greek, and I just find it like, oh, this is fun, you know? Most people would be like, this is not fun, you know? But I find it fun. And what I need to do, actually, is have rhythms that keep my heart soft in the midst of study. So, like, I actually have to create disciplines of worship, right? So I need to break out a guitar and I need to sing songs to God to keep my heart soft so that I'm not just a walking brain, right? But my heart is soft towards God. And I think we all need to be aware, right? As we look back on our stories and our experiences, maybe you see sort of a train wreck of relationships where each time something gets hard, you bail, And maybe you need a practice in your life. Oh, man, I'm really great. Maybe you look back on your life and you see, oh, man, I'm really great at prayer, but I haven't looked at the Scriptures in a year. Don't tell anyone, you know. Maybe you need to up that practice of being in the Bible. Or maybe you look back on your story and you see, there's never been a season where I actually gave of my financial resources. And you're like, maybe I need a a practice or a discipline of generosity so that my heart and life can be shaped into Jesus' image. I think maybe one just really practical tip I would encourage you to do, this week at some point, look back on, I don't know, even just the last few months, what people, places, and things have brought you life. What people, places, and things have brought you life. And secondly, what people, places, and things have drained you? This is going to be nuanced for everyone. But like, what are the practices you need in your life to bring you life? And you can look at, you can mine your experience and look at, oh, these people really bring me life. They draw me closer to the person of Jesus. You should probably spend more time with those people. Or maybe you realize, like, I cannot rest. I have the hardest time with Sabbath. But you realize that when you take that time alone, practice that you experience a profound amount of life. Oh, well, maybe that should be a practice that you implement. Right? And this is where our experience shapes the rhythms that we adopt. Now, I found uh, one exercise in particular to be incredibly helpful. And this is super practical. I would invite all of you to do this. So what I would like you to do at some point, maybe this week, next week, I don't know, in the next month, six months, 10 years, whatever, at some point, maybe you'll remember it in five years. Tony said in five years I would remember this. So you grab 50 Post-it notes. Two different colors, maybe like a red and a blue. And just write down whatever experiences in your life that feel meaningful to you. 
On the red ones, right, moments of pain and suffering, things that were really hard. On blue ones, right, neutral or positive events in your life. Don't limit yourself. Whatever they can be. They can be anything. It's your story. Between 30 and 50, depending on how long you've lived, you might need more. Second, now organize them chronologically. So just brainstorm them out and then organize them chronologically. I use uh, have them sort of organized chronologically, maybe on like a big piece of like paper. I use um, these like trifolds, something like this, right? So you can sort of fold it out. So you have this trifold, put them all out there. And then in each major chapter, do a title. So what's going on in that season of your life? What's the title? If you were going to name that season, what would the title be? Okay. Step four is you take some time to prayerfully be in the presence of Jesus. And you can do this over a month. You can do this over six months. And just on the bottom, put these little pieces of paper. What did you learn in that season? What was God trying to teach you? What's the lesson that God was trying to teach you that you didn't actually learn? And you watch as you repeat it again and again and again. Because I guarantee you if God is trying to teach you a lesson, he will bring it back again and you'll have to relearn it. You'll have to learn it at some point. What are the ways in each season that you really connected to Jesus? Do you see a pattern over time? Oh, God, these are the seasons that I've been most alive. God, what was going on? Man, these are the seasons that I have been most dead in you. God, what was going on in those seasons? What did I miss? What changed? But using a simple tool like this, you can mine your experience in a prayerful way with God so that he can mirror back to you what is going on in your life. He can show you the ways in which your, your experiences and your stories have shaped your choices for good or for ill. Right? And he can actually be a window into what experiences, what rhythms, what habits you need to adopt so that you draw nearer to the person of Jesus. It's a simple tool that actually keeps giving. I, I bring mine out, like you can see a little trifold, right? I have, I bring this guy out and I have my chapters, I have my lessons on the bottom and every like six months, I'll go through it again. God, what, if, what are you trying to teach me here? God, what did I not learn that you're wanting me to see? All right, so if we were going to do just a quick review, I would say this. This morning what we've done is say, hey, God uses our stories, right, to help us or as a mirror for our insight, right? He uses us to look at our stories so that we can learn about ourselves, so that we can know. And he also uses our stories so that we can make good choices and we know why we're making the choices we make. Right? The, the scriptures might call this wisdom. Three, right? God uses our story so that we can identify the rhythms that we need to embrace. I want to invite the worship team up. Because what we're going to do now is we're just going to create a little space for God to speak. 
We're just going to create a little space where we can look at our lives and just say, all right, God, what are you doing right now? Right, because I am convinced that every single person in this room is in the midst of a story. That you come in here, some of us come in with sadness that we are wanting in this season of Advent for Jesus to come draw near and be with us. And some of us come in with questions about meaning and vocation and work and job and we're wondering, God, how have you shaped and formed me that I can participate in your kingdom and in this world in a faithful way? Some of us come in this morning feeling lost and distant from Jesus and we're wondering some practices you. What is our role? What does it look like, Jesus, to adopt rhythms and practices that we can draw nearer to you, that we can be shaped into your image? So as we sit here this morning, I just want to invite the Holy Spirit just to speak to us. Maybe God will bring to mind a season of your life when you thrived, when you felt close to him, And God, we just want to ask, God, why why in that season were we feeling so close to you? What has changed? God, open our eyes. God, that we might see. Soften our hearts, God, that we might be willing to hear your invitation. Maybe things are going great right now. And Jesus, we ask for you to reveal us why. God, what are we doing in our life right now that makes it so that we feel alive in you? God, speak to us. And God, I ask that you would reveal by the power of your Holy Spirit the dances and the rhythms that we're stuck in drawing us, that are draining the life out of us. God, give us eyes to see that we might experience your presence, that we might be set free. God, we want to be a people whose hearts are on fire for you. But sometimes we are blind to our own lives, just as David was. God, speak to us. And for some of us, right, it's, it's too painful to look at our stories because all we see, all we see is the damage that was done to us by other people. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that if this idea of even looking back is too painful, God, that you would just come and be present to us in that space of being trapped, in that space of being afraid, afraid that we're gonna be swallowed by the pain of our past. So we just want to keep it all to the side. And God, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and shepherd us. In this Advent season, God, we call out your name and say, come, Emmanuel. Come, be with us. Just as they called out in the first century for you to come, we come, oh Emmanuel. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Come, come, oh Emmanuel.